Well, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians, <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1. And since it's been a few weeks now since we last visited Ephesians, I want to do a quick review from verse 1 to catch us up to where we're going to end up this morning, verses 5 and 6. So let me first uh, just read from the beginning to kind of refresh our memories. Ephesians 1, 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ, through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So we began this epistle acknowledging Paul's authority. He was an apostle, not of his own making, but by the will of God, we see from the text. And of course, we also understand that the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, meaning that the words of Ephesians are not just the Apostle Paul's words, they are the very words of God. That's important, especially as we live in a culture who consistently tries to diminish the Apostle Paul's words in particular. This was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle. The very next consideration was to whom Paul addressed this letter. This is important. He addresses it to whom? To the saints, he says. He goes on to further identify saints as ones who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And so we understand that this letter to the Ephesians, which was likely a circular letter, it went to the Ephesians first and then it was passed around, is really a letter to all of the redeemed, to all of those who call themselves Christians. And so it's a letter for you and for me. In verse 2, we spoke of the grace and peace that comes from God through Christ and we got to verse 3, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so we noticed how the apostle begins that by praising God first, before he ever tells us that we're blessed or with what we are blessed. Reflecting the truth that God is worthy to be praised for no other reason than that he is God. And yet, we see in the text that because he is the blessed one, he in turn blesses those whom he chooses. We then spent quite a bit of time considering the praiseworthiness of God the Father, his majesty. We talked about his grandeur, his vastness, his magnificence, as much, of course, as any human could consider such high and noble qualities of an infinite God. We spent some time dwelling on those things. And from there, we considered the rest of that verse, which says that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so we asked and pondered some questions, like how could we, as sinful as we are, be the subjects of such great wealth, such 
great treasure. We've often referred to the book of Ephesians as the treasure house of the Christian faith. And yet, as sinful as we are, our text tells us that we have been given every spiritual blessing. It's interesting because not only does God bless us, but he tells us that we have every blessing. That's important, that word. Not just some, not just one here and there, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We spoke a little bit about that. And so that is that the God of the heavens who dwells in perfect unity with the Trinity, who's existed without the need for you and I for all of eternity, has chosen to give you every spiritual blessing. From there we come to verse 4, which reads, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. We spoke about how that is the very high and majestic doctrine of election. Just as he chose us in him, when did he choose us? Before the foundations of the world. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? And to what purpose? That we would be holy and blameless before him. He chose you not because you are good enough, not because you're better than the man sitting to your right or to your left, not even because he foresaw you would have faith, but he chose you only because of these three simple little words, he chose you. That's it, because he delighted to do so. It was the Father's good pleasure, we're told in Scripture, that caused him to choose you, to redeem you, and then to bless you with every spiritual blessing. We spoke about how the doctrine of election is often a very hard doctrine for men to receive and certainly to comprehend, but that it's no less true. And it has to be that God did the choosing and that God does the work alone because if man participated in his salvation in any way, even by a choice to respond to the gospel on his own, God would be obligated to share his glory. But of course, we know God does not share his glory. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. And so the work is God's and God's alone. And besides, we talked about how that really should give us great comfort. How does that give us comfort? Well, we should take comfort in knowing that it's God that chose us, not because we were good or that we had anything to give. It should comfort us knowing that it's His work alone, because that means if it's God's work alone, then it's God's work that keeps us. That's comforting. It's a comforting thought for the believer. You don't have to earn your salvation because your salvation is the work of God, not your own. You don't have to keep your salvation because it's the work of God and His alone. And in fact, if you were the ones that had to keep your salvation, you wouldn't because you couldn't. Not sure about that? Well, just think, how often do we sin? How often do we turn from the truth? How often do you doubt God? How often do you make wrong decisions? And we could go on and on, and I think it's quite clear. One man said it this way, that the only thing you contribute to your own salvation is the sin that made it necessary. 
And so we come to the doctrine of election in verse 4, and we celebrate it. We rest in it. Though we may not fully comprehend it, we delight in it because it's true. And it's a comfort. And so we go on and we ask the question, well, what's the result of this election? Or rather, what's the power of election? And we can certainly see that in John 6, 35-40. It says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe, and all that the Father gives me will come to me. Well, let me just back right up there. 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, it's the Father's will that you were chosen in Christ. Well, Jesus goes on to say, this is the will of him who sent me, that all that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. I lose nothing. That's pretty clear, right? All that God has chosen in Christ Jesus, Christ says he loses none. But he goes on to say, not only does he lose nothing, but he raises it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. And so while we may not fully comprehend the doctrine of election, and while some may fight against the doctrine of election, there's really no greater comforting promise than that doctrine. Because it's all of God's work, not just to save you in Christ, but then Christ assures us that because that's true, he will keep us and raise us up on the last day. Obviously, we still live obedient lives, but it's God that keeps us. Well, we can go on, John 10, 26-30. Again, Jesus says, but, do you, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There's a lot of definites there. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Well, as though it's not enough for Jesus to say, no one can snatch you out of my hand, he goes even a step farther, further than that. He says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Well, so for you apologetics fans there, there's a verse, should... Someone ever say, where did Jesus claim to be God? Uh, Well, that one's pretty clear. So it's the work of God. He chooses us in Christ. Christ keeps us. He promises that. And then he goes beyond that and says, well, not only can no one snatch you out of my hand, but my Father is even greater, and no one can snatch you out of his hand. And so the reality is you belong to Christ because God chose you. And because God shows you, he promises to keep you. That's good news, right? I mean, that's good news for the believer. In fact, for those who are already saved, I don't think there's any greater news than that. Because we understand that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. And so God brings you to your end faithfully. 
Let me say that doesn't mean that life here is easy. I mean, we know that's certainly true. We live in a sin-sick world that doesn't give us hope in and of itself. But we can take comfort in knowing that God will cause us to persevere. And not only that, but in our previous verse, he tells us that he gives us every spiritual blessing. And those help us, sanctify us, cause us to persevere. So we also recognize that the doctrine of election is a great mystery, and we spoke about the fact that it shouldn't make us haughty to believe in that. We shouldn't become proud or arrogant or even teach that doctrine in a wrong spirit. Believing this doctrine shouldn't make us arrogant or cocky. It should bring us low and cause us to be humble because you aren't any better than any other man out there or woman out there because you're saved and they're not. You weren't good enough to be saved. God, just in his loving kindness, chose you. And we don't know who God has and hasn't chosen. So understanding that doctrine should cause us to be humble. And the reality is when we start talking about God's election and his predestination and these things in Scripture, we're talking about high and holy things from the will of God who existed before all of eternity. We can't presume to fully understand the mind of God, although we try as best we can. And so we approach it reverently and with humility. It should cause us to respond with a great love towards God and with a great humility towards others. Now concerning the doctrine of election, the next thing we acknowledge is how often it's challenged and questioned. Although it's quite clear in Scripture, and we ask the question, does Scripture give us any real definitive answers to the doctrine of election? Does it explain it? Does it give us any deeper knowledge? Well, it, it really doesn't. It just simply tells us that it's true. If you'll remember Romans 9, 13 through 23, I won't read all of that, but just let me remind you, this is someone questioning the Apostle Paul over the very same doctrine. He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And so scripture doesn't give an answer to the doctrine of election. It just simply tells us that it's true and that as creatures we have no right to question God. Well, we can understand that if we really step back and remember who it is that we pray to, talk to, right? We're talking about the being who is holy, who created everything that is created, who existed for all of eternity, past. And when we approach him, yes, we do it as children of God, but there's also a reverence that's needed. And so the scripture says, for those who question who God chooses and who he doesn't, the scripture says, who are you? 
oh man, to question God. And so finally, we saw the culmination of all of those verses, which answers the question of to what purpose all of this happens. And the ending of verse 4, it says that we would be holy and blameless before him. God causes you to be holy and blameless before him. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, you can't see God. And so he made a way for that to be reconciled for what was done in the garden to be undone, as it were. We have to have holiness to see God. And so the ending of verse 4 tells us that it's God himself who makes us holy and blameless so that we can have communion with him. And so God chooses us. He places us in Christ. He gives us every spiritual blessing so that we'll be holy in order to commune with him. I mean, that's all pretty good news so far. And we're just really getting started in the book of Ephesians. So as we come to our passage this morning, and this catches us up to where we are, we'll see that all of this was done in love. You'll put your eyes on the very end of verse 4, or the first of verse 5. Some Bibles have it differently, and you'll notice that that's a strange place to put the phrase, in love, and that's because most translators had some difficulty in whether to put it on the back of verse 4 or the beginning of verse 5. But it says, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And so this is the motive for everything that God's done. Love. Now let me just say that the word love here in the original language is agape. You've probably heard that term, but maybe you're not sure what it means. Agape love, the love of God, it's not an emotional love. It's not a touchy-feely love. It's not a fleeting affection. But it's a heart disposition that seeks to meet the needs of others. It's a heart posture of welfare towards another. And so we aren't talking about love as in the butterflies in the stomach or infatuation, but a love that is committed even to death. That's what this love of God is. And so everything that he's done, he's chosen you, he's called you, he's placed you in Christ, he's given you all spiritual blessings, and he's done it because of his love for you, a love that's committed to death. Well, that sounds familiar, right? A love that's committed to death. John fifteen thirteen. greater love has no one than this that one lay down his own life for his friends. And so the reality is that God loved you in such a way that Christ came and he died for your sins. I mean, this is unfathomable for us to fully comprehend. Our love is always, and in most cases, rooted in some form of selfishness or sin, but this isn't so with God. It's a pure love. It's a committed love. It's an undeserved love from the God of the universe. And so Christ, 
out of love came and died for you so that you could be made holy and blameless and reconciled to God. So in love, it says, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intentions of his will. I mean, I think we realize that God doesn't need you, right? You, you realize that. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. As some would say, God, these days, some teach that God just needs you, and the language they use would give you the impression that God can't live without you. Really, that you're the center of the universe, but that isn't so at all. God was perfectly satisfied in the Trinity for all of time. So it isn't that he couldn't live without you, as some foolish people teach, but it's just that he simply chose to love you and chose to commune with you. And then our passage we'll see this morning, he went far beyond that. He chose to adopt you as sons or daughters. I mean, just think about that. I mean, we understand adoption on a human level, right? The God of the universe who didn't need to do anything chose you, placed you in Christ, made you holy, and then adopted you as his son, as his daughter. Our text goes on to tell us that he predestined us, right? Well, what does that term mean? We've got a few new things in our passage this morning. Predestined, it's different from election. Election is the action. You've been elected, Predestined just means that it was something that was determined beforehand. So we predestined that you would become sons and daughters. So long beforehand, God determined that to be true. Predestined also means to ordain that something would come to pass. In other words, God decided it would come to pass, and so it will. It's a decision that was made long before the foundations of the world. And of course, the result of this predestination is adoption. This is why you're adopted. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time this morning talking about adoption. Because we need to understand what language Paul's using here. Adoption in Paul's world isn't like adoption in our world. It was quite a bit different. We're talking about sonship. If you've heard that terminology, you're adopted as sons or daughters. So we've spoken about election. We've spoken about predestination. predestination. I want to spend the majority of our time this morning talking about adoption. What does it really mean when it says we're adopted as sons of God? So this is the result. You were predestined. You were elected so that you might become adopted as sons and daughters. So the context of Paul is... Roman law, okay? He's writing in a world where it's been quite a long time since the area he's in has been, have been ruled by Jewish law, and so that would have been totally unfamiliar with what's going on. He's thinking of Roman law here, him being a Roman citizen himself. He would have had this in mind while communicating adoption. So what would happen is the Roman family structure, okay, just in society gave absolute authority and power to the father, right? Over every member of the family, over all possessions 
in the family to the extent that should the father deem it necessary to even take a life of someone in the family, it, he could do so without it being murder. So we're, we're coming from an understanding of the father having an absolute authority over the family. Adoptions under Roman law were a bit of a process. It was a two-tiered process. If someone wanted to adopt another, now why would anyone do that? Well, there are lots of reasons, but this was very common in royalty, right? Someone in rule had no son, and they wanted to pass on their name and their heritage. And so the only way to do this in Roman law, if you didn't have a son, would be to adopt one. So first, what would happen is the son that was being adopted had to be released from his natural earthly father's authority. Because remember, the father has absolute authority over the family. So even someone of royal royalty couldn't come up and just say, I'm adopting your kid. It didn't work that way. Even he couldn't supersede the Roman law. No, the one being adopted had to be released from his earthly father's authority. It was a bit of a strange process. Effectively, he would have to sell his son to the one who wanted to adopt him into slavery three times. It's a bit strange. And so he would sell him into slavery to the one who wanted to adopt him. The one who wanted to adopt him would set him free. Once you were set free, you automatically came back under the authority of your father's house. Automatically. And so a second time, the father would sell him into slavery to the one who wanted to adopt him. He would set him free. He would come back to his father's house, and now this is where it was complete. The third time, when the father sold him into slavery by Roman law, he lost all authority and rule over that son. And it went to the adopting father. And so now... The one who's adopted the kid is legally considered as though he were a natural father. His, everything he had, his life, his possessions, everything now was towards his new father. There was really no idea of, well, this is just my adopted son. No, it's just this is my son. He'll carry on my name, my lineage, my work, my everything. Adoption was quite a powerful thing in Roman time. There are some other things. The adoptee would now take on a new name, right? Take on his father's name. He would be given a new status. And so if he came from a poor slave-like condition and he went into royalty, he's no longer a poor slave. Now he has a new status. He's the son of royalty, and he experiences all the privileges of that. He's treated as though he were the very natural son of the one who adopted him. So undoubtedly, this is what Paul had in mind as he's relating to us the fact that we are adopted by God as sons. This would have been the system that they knew and what they understood. Well, that puts a new light when we think about adoption and just how grand it is, it means that whatever father we had before no longer has any authority over us. It means that God now has absolute authority over us, over all that we are, over our possessions. 
And that might sound a bit strange for very self-centered Americans, but guess what else comes with that? You also take his name. You now bear the name of Christ. Well, you're a Christian, aren't you? You're a son and daughter of God. It also means that you're heirs to everything that God has and God is. That sounds familiar, heirs with Christ, heirs in Christ. We hear that language all the time. This doctrine is quite an amazing doctrine. In fact, it ought to cause us to have such great love for God, especially when we answer this next question, who was your father before? Just who was it that God adopted you from? Well, let's go to John 8, 39 and 47. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to him, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. Who the deeds of their father? They said to him, we are not born as a result of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. Jesus said to him, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came forth from God and am here, for I have not even come on my own, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot listen to my word. And so here it comes. Who is our father before God? You are of your father, the devil. That was your father before Christ. And you do want the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I say the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? The one who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. Well, so now not only are we adopted, but we're adopted from our father, the devil. Colossians 1, 21, 22. And although you were previously alienated and hostile in attitude, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh through death in order to present you before him well, here's that language, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Well, you were alienated and hostile and engaged in evil deeds because you did the deeds of your father. Colossians 3, 3 through 10. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, treat the parts of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience." Sons of disobedience, right? Sons of the devil. And in them you also once 
walked when you were living in them. But now, but now, you also rid yourselves of all of them, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you stripped off the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. And so just like the Roman who was released from his original father's grasp, life, name, character, you too have been released from your original father's character, way of life, name. No longer are you a son or a daughter of disobedience, but now you're a son or daughter of the Most High God. No longer are you filled with evil intent, but God's given you a new heart. Well, that sort of imagery certainly gives life to the term adoption, doesn't it? It's not just that you were an orphan, you weren't. You had a father, and you did the deeds of him, and he was evil, and God saved you, redeemed you, and adopted you out of that because he loved you. And with that, verse 3, it tells us he gives you every spiritual blessing. And so the believer, having been adopted, has a new status. You have new privileges. You're now an heir to a greater kingdom. And scripture goes even as far as to say that you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So just as a Roman would be subject under the authority of his new father, you too are now subject to the authority of your new father. But he's not a harsh taskmaster like Satan. He's a loving father. He says that his burdens are light and his yoke is easy. And so we rest and trust and lean in on him. Romans 8.15, we're told, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. There's a lot just in a couple short sentences, and I think you see why we take these passages a little slower. I mean, at first, I mean, we're only six passages into the book. At first, we're told that God's chosen us, that's a grand thing to wrap your mind around, that God would choose me, that he would choose you, that you were predestined, that he thought of you before the foundation of the world, and because he thought of you, he elected you, and now the culmination of that is you are adopted, saved from the evil one, and brought into loving relationship with God. And not only are you adopted, but he promises to keep you. You can't run away from God. You can't lose your salvation. You can't find yourself in a place where you're unadopted, as it were. Just think about that. The God of the universe adopted you as his daughter adopted you as his son. And these are things worth taking a Sunday afternoon 
and just thinking about. Our verse goes on to tell us that he's done all of this according to the kind intentions of his will. That, that's towards you. It's just out of God's kindness towards you that he's done these things. I mean, have you ever thought about the fact that God looked at you with kindness? Have you ever thought about that? That's kind of a mind-blowing thought. The God of the heavens and the universe looked at you specifically with kindness and redeemed you. That you're the recipient of the affections of God and for no other reason than he just wanted to. He didn't need you. You couldn't earn it, but only because of his kindness. I mean, who are we that the God of the universe should look at us with kindness? And we were just sinful creatures prone to evil, prone to bickering, prone to doubt and distrust. And we do those things even as we're saved, prone to defect and blunder. And yet, God's kindness grasp you when you were still under the reign of your father, the devil, and he saved you and adopted you as his own. He predestined you, even, so that he could lavish his blessings on you. And, of course, we're not talking about Lamborghinis and fancy cars and wealthy houses and big bank accounts. We're talking about everything that you need for this life and faith, spiritual blessings. Certainly, God chooses to do those things for some folks, but those are the lesser of the blessings what a loving God. I mean, what a glorious doctrine, election and now adoption. How, how could anyone resist such amazing doctrines? An even greater question, how grateful should you be for them? You're given a new status, you're given a new life, you're given new riches, you're redeemed and you're loved by a holy God who makes you holy also. And at the end of all of this, what purpose does all of this serve? Where well, our text goes on to tell us, according to the kind intentions of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Well, we just heard that recently, right? Soli Deo Gloria. For the glory of God alone Above everything else, God saves us, he adopts us, so that his glory can be displayed in and through us. I mean, this was the cry of the Reformation that acknowledges the truth of all of creation, and everything that is, is for the glory of God. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11, 12 says this, To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus would be glorified in you. Is the name of Jesus glorified in you? That's a good question we should ask ourselves. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, 
So we think back to the doctrine of election, we now understand that it must be a work of God alone because it contributes to the glory of God and God doesn't share his glory. Man does nothing to earn his salvation. Man can do nothing to keep his salvation. Does that mean we can just go out and sin so that the grace of God would abound? Well, Paul answered that question, right? He said, no, by no means should we do that. And in fact, the one who is content in his sin is not truly called or elected. There's certainly fruits of our salvation. So to make it clear to us, God made every provision for our salvation before creation so that no one would share his glory. It was predetermined long before you were made, long before the earth was created, long before the universe was created. God looked at you and redeemed you and predestined that you would become his son and daughter. As we consider the fact that God looked upon us and decided to love us and adopt us, we should consider this a reason to glorify him in all we do. You come to passages like 1 Corinthians 10.31 that says, Whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. By now you really understand you have a reason to do all that you do for the glory of God. It's the very reason he saved you, that his glory would be demonstrated in you and through you. So just in these first few verses, 1 through 6, and remember, 1 through 14 is one long sentence. The Apostle Paul didn't bother to put a period anywhere. We're just covering verses 1 through 6 now, which is the work of the Father. We're going to move on next week to start talking about the work of the Son. And then the last few verses of 12 through 14 is the work of the Holy Spirit. But to kind of sum up what we've gone through so far, we saw the doctrine of election, then we saw the object of election, which is you, the elect, those who are chosen. We then saw that this election happens in eternity past, so that no man can share in God's glory. And the purpose for that election is to make you holy and blameless before him. Then scripture goes on, and we spoke about the motive this morning of this saving grace, which is very simply God's love towards you. And it's not a sappy, sloppy, ooey-gooey, fleeting love, like some of these nonsensical songs you hear today. It's a love that causes Christ to come and die for your sake. It's a committed love. That's the whole motive for all of this. In love, he predestined us to adoption. So if you ever doubt God's love for you, go back to these verses and consider this. And the result of that love through predestination is our adoption as sons and daughters. He pulled you out of a wicked world and a wicked family headed for hell and damnation, and he brought you into his own family where you're seated in Christ and an heir with Christ. I mean, you were once bound in darkness. You were a slave to the devil. You were loving evil like we all do. 
on the road to death and destruction, and then for no other reason than that God loved you, he saved you. And he adopted you as his own child in Christ Jesus. And so now you're free from the bondage of sin because you have a new character, a new life, a new name. You're no longer a slave of Satan, but now you're a slave of Christ. How many times does Paul start his letters with, I, Paul, a slave of Christ? You have a new status, and God's given you every spiritual blessing, all so that he would be glorified. And that we're told, whatever we do, do for the glory of God as sons and daughters. I mean, really, what Christian could read these passages, could look at these truths, and really just not have a well of joy spring up in them? How can you not come to a deeper love for God, knowing that this is really what's happened to you? I mean, what Christian could ever consider the, doc- the doctrine of adoption truly and not want to fall on their knees and worship and praise God? And so what does it look like now? What are you now? If you're not sons of disobedience, you know you're sons of God, but what does that look like? 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? That's a big difference. Your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit that lives in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own because you've been adopted. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Are you glorifying God in your body, in your life, your choices, your actions? how you respond to your friends, to your family, to your parents. Glorify God in your body. You are not your own. You have been adopted. And you're the son or a daughter of the king, paid for with a price, the blood of Christ. So glorify him who bought you with a price. Let's pray.